0: Good morning. How many of you are fans of The Sound of Music? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. My family would be thrilled. You would think that I would like The Sound of Music. You know, it's set in the context of the Nazi era of World War II Germany. It contains lots of music, which is part of my genetic heritage, even if I'm some kind of genetic mutation. Uh, Disappointing at that. The the females of our family in particular love it, with all the music and the acting and the relational drama and the history and the family complications. I think I've heard that movie literally dozens of times from the driver's seat of our minivan as we've traveled. I could probably sing most of the solos in fact, but I'll save you that ecstasy this morning. The fact is most of the Yoders have been mesmerized by that musical. Honestly, though, I get very little joy from watching the movie. Less, in fact, than most movies as a non-movie watcher. It's a curse, I know. My family, however, with the lone exception of the person you're looking at, and perhaps my oldest son, really, really loves the movie. And there are many reasons why. Perhaps the greatest of them is that in this movie, this musical, There is fantastic drama, it's full of twists and turns. Just when you think one development will occur, a grand unexpected disappointment does. Just when you think one solution has arrived, terrible news comes. There's something really captivating about a drama that pulls you in and leaves you stunned and awed in the end, the sound of music may not be your ultimate drama, but I'll bet that you can think of a musical or a movie or a play that fits exactly that bill. A drama leaves you stunned and awed. There's nothing quite like it. Today we're gonna be looking at a 30,000 foot level at the divine drama of the Gospel. We're in the second section of Romans chapter 11. Hopefully you brought your Bibles with you. If you don't, we'd be happy to put a hard copy in your hands Uh, for your loaning. If you have one at home, take this and just return it at the end. If you don't have a hard copy of the scriptures, this is our gift to you. Take, read, and benefit. Romans chapter 11, this is our second to last week in our seven week series from Romans 9 to 11 called, Called to the Gospel. And in this series we're examining how God could include both his chosen people and all the people groups of the world to highlight the gospel and to show off his glory. In other words, it's not all done at once, it progresses in stages. It is a divine drama. Now I know that as you came in here today, you did not look back on this past week or you do not look forward to this coming week stuck with that question, gnawing inside of you, how does God include the Jews and the Gentiles in the gospel? You might even look at this passage and think, this is, this is kind of irrelevant. I mean, how does this affect my life, my relationships, my family, my job, my finances, my children, my health? And I grant you that this may seem somewhat distant, but I'm here to say that sometimes What we think is most urgent is actually least important. And what may be most important actually seems to us to be least urgent. I think Romans 11 fits into the category of cosmically important for us because it sketches out the plan of God and it helps you realize that you fit in the story too and where you fit. Romans 11. Uh, follow along here as we look at this section. We could say that these three chapters, most of which we've already covered, look like this. Romans nine is the call of God in salvation. Keyword call. Romans 10 is the means of God in salvation. Namely, that the gospel goes with people, God's people, to the nations. And Romans 11, who are those the people of God in salvation, the call of God, the means of God, and the people of God in salvation. Next week, we'll look back in our final week at Romans nine to 11 in a rather step-by-step fashion. Chances are this is the summer you've probably missed a week or two in our series, so review is important. But for our purposes today, we need to at least know what's going on in this chapter, Romans 11. Today is part two in that chapter in Paul's argument. Part one, last week, looked at the rejection of Israel, or so it seemed. We looked at the remnant of Israel, we looked at the rest of Israel, and we looked at the fact that God would restore Israel in the future. And the Gentiles, most of us in here, play a starring role in that. Part three, the final week next week, is the climactic look at this breathtaking crescendo, speaking of music, at the end of Romans 11, you will certainly wanna be here. Let me say that not only in the morning is that important, but in the evening next week, a special all church worship night, which is launched by the end of Romans 11. Make sure that you're there. Let's begin today by reading Romans 11, beginning in verse 17, and I'll ask you to stand in honor the word of God as we do so. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, I'm reading from the New International Version. If some of the branches have been broken off and you through a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Thanks, you may have a seat. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. Here in Romans 11, Paul is emphasizing two main points. Uh, They they speak to the two ethnic groups of humanity as God sees them, the Jews and all the non-Jews or Gentiles. And here are the two lessons. There's a warning to the Gentile believers, then and now, not to presume. And secondly, there's a promise to the Israelite unbelievers that they too could be restored. A warning to the Gentile believers don't presume, a promise to the Israelite unbelievers they could be restored. In other words, the Gentiles shouldn't think that they've become the permanent undisputed focus of God's affection and of God's attention. And the Jews shouldn't despair, thinking they've become this permanent orphan. They've become kind of the relational roadkill of God's plan. God's mercy, God's wisdom embraces both of them in a way that brings blessing to all of them and glory to God. How cool is that? First point in your outline, on the back of your worship program, the analogy of God's grand plan, insight and warning. Insight and warning. Step back a verse in verse 16, which is transitional in nature. Think of it like an entrance ramp onto a highway, the highway of our passage today. Paul's point is simple and it's important. He speaks of dough in order to convey the the fact that if something is in part there, it conveys a kind of set-apartness, it makes special the whole batch. And it paves the way for this beginning in verse 17. Paul describes here a a major analogy, a, a metaphor of sorts, that presents the cosmic picture of what God's doing. Here we find the salvation story. Here we find how the Gentiles, the nations, and the people of Israel, the Jews, are included in the stunning work of God. Paul describes an olive tree. Now, an olive tree was one of the most common trees in the Mediterranean world. It would be as if Paul was speaking to us about an apple tree or to people in Florida about an orange tree. But good news for you and for me, we don't need some PhD in horticulture to understand what he's saying here. Paul didn't have that, neither must we. There's a tree, there are branches, natural and wild branches. There's nutritious sap and there's, there are roots. And the focus in this section is on the two kinds of branches. The native branches to the olive tree and the wild branches not native to a cultivated olive tree. Essentially, the analogy works here like this. The tree represents the people of god in the broadest sense spanning across time and across ethnicities the tree is the people of god the root is the patriarchs think abraham isaac jacob and the like it doesn't say that specifically here but in understanding the passage it becomes clear that the patriarchs are in view god made his promise to abraham the natural branches you follow along are the jews Either, these are the ones that are natural to the cultivated olive tree. The wild branches are the Gentiles. And then finally, what is the nourishing sap, as it says in the NIV? This is God's promised good news from long ago, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. Write those down if you can. This will help you understand the analogy. What do we learn here? Well, we learned that the Gentiles' very existence spiritually this is you and me as well, it depends on connection to the tree that has very Jewish roots, Jewish soil, Jewish patriarchs, Jewish promises. In other words, the Jews have the natural connections. Most of us do not. And we learn that the natural branches can be grafted back into the tree from which they came rather easily. Anyone who knows something about botany knows the advantages of that. Paul, a Jew, aches for his own people, the Jews, and Paul, a Jew, is hopeful for the future of those very people. Ah, but that's history. That's God's ancient plan long ago. Lots of time has passed here, hasn't it? And lots has changed, especially for this young church in Rome, the world's capital that has many Gentiles and some Jews. That's who Paul is writing to here. This was a long time after the glory days for the Jews. You know, the days of of David, the days of Solomon. They were a long way from the promised land. They were living as kind of foreigners in the capital city, Rome. And they were vulnerable, these Jews were. Very vulnerable. John Stott summarizes it like this. Although the Jews were tolerated and protected by law from Gentile abuse... They suffered a great deal of popular Gentile ill will, sometimes outbreaks of violence. Resisting assimilation to the Gentile culture, refusing to abandon to change their own practices, their exclusiveness, the Jews, bred unpopularity from which anti-Semitism was born. The Jews, outrights, writes, was a figure of amusement, contempt, hatred to the Gentiles among whom he lived. Paul knew as a Jew sent to the Gentiles that the Gentiles now had superior social status in society. And the analogy is clear, but Paul's point is even clearer. He says, Gentiles, don't get all full of yourself. Don't think that you are now God's prized people. You're the only children of God. Don't think that God has permanently sidelined his chosen people from long ago. Don't be condescending. Don't be arrogant. Instead, you should fear God. That's the word there. Because he can show mercy and he can judge. And to those who get all smug and spoiled, he will judge harshly. And as proof, he's already done so with the Jews. Verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness otherwise you also will be cut off and if they do not persist in unbelief they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again this is an unforgettable warning this is Paul taking his finger and putting it in the chest of the Gentiles and saying to them if you think that you're all free and clear with God no matter what you do think again If you think that God is done with the Jews because of their rebellion, think again. The salvation offered to you Gentiles is by grace, and God can take that offer away. Don't presume. Don't get cocky. Here's the danger. The Gentiles rejoicing at being included with the Jews in God's people would all too easily lead to boasting that they had replaced the Jews as the people of God be warned the Gentiles could be rejected just like the Jews there's not room for complacency the Jews could be accepted just like the Gentiles there's no room for despair everyone is on alert Paul says don't get cocky and don't despair Paul uses some fascinating words here to describe the character of God Let's say he moves from taking his finger in the chest of the Gentiles to putting his arm around them to teach them something. Words of hope, words of caution. He says, consider the kindness of God. God's full of loving kindness. God's full of covenant love. The Old Testament says this repeatedly. But God, the same God, is also quite capable of sternness, or in some of your Bibles, severity, God's not a pushover for those who choose unbelief. Let me say that again. God is not a pushover for those who choose unbelief. That's a reality that everyone in every age, including our own, ought to pay attention to. God is kind and God is judge. Don't ever divorce the two. Those two things are true of every good father. And God is a perfect father. So which one of those, kindness or sternness, currently rests on you? It's a question for the Gentiles in Rome 2,000 years ago. It's also a good question for us in 2019 America. Here's what New York City Pastor Tim Keller says succinctly. Whether his, God's kindness or sternness rests on you, depends on whether you believe or disbelieve. The example of disbelieving Israel as Paul writes about, should prevent any casual complacency. Don't think that God's favor cannot be withdrawn. It certainly can. And it has been, to a degree, with the Jews. Though they were the chosen people, the Jews began to think that they were the choice people. And the Gentiles are warned, don't follow that example. Jesus himself said, John 4, 22, salvation is from the Jews. What did he mean by that? He meant you're looking at one. And so the Jews are warned here against thinking that genetics guarantees salvation. Many people in our world today think that. They think that their religious background, they think that their moral rectitude, they think that the spiritual training they got as a young person, they think that the godly parents they have guarantees Salvation from sin, it absolutely does not. Personal faith is required to overcome the penalty and the power of sin. Every group needs the sovereign grace of God. Do you believe that? Everyone. Paul's focus here so far is on the two groups of humanity Jews and non Jews or Gentiles. The Jews, they were chosen for unique blessing in order to be a blessing to the world. It wasn't for them to hoard, but it was for them as a vehicle. But they had largely rejected the ultimate revelation from God, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then there were the Gentiles who were in desperate need of God's blessing, God's mercy. They were the ones who for Many centuries lived in rebellion, in ignorance, most of them, then and some still today, with no knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks of the the plight, the spiritual condition, and the destiny of both of those groups, Jews and non-Jews. But as much as Paul speaks of groups, he's not unaware of individuals, and neither was God. Chapter 9 spoke much about God's election and God's sovereignty and God's mercy, including to individuals in need of salvation. And so we should read this chapter as well, not moving uh, individuals off the scene, but remembering that within those groups, there are millions of individuals like you and me. Why does that matter? Because salvation is offered to individuals. As Keller highlighted there, Each of them, each of us can respond in belief or unbelief. The the fact that God is sovereign doesn't absolve any of us from the response, from the choice required of us. And belief is not meant to be a one-time profession, but it's meant to be a lifetime posture. Belief is not meant to be a one-time profession, but a lifetime posture. Faith is a way of life. It's not the mood of the moment. We might say that differently. Paul insists that no one can presume upon God's grace and imagine that blessing will be theirs regardless of their continuance in the faith. Consider that. God's grace is a blessing that assumes our continued belief. Verses 17 to 24, a very important section, a very important analogy for us to look at regarding how God deals with the Jews and the Gentiles and a warning to those of us who might think that we get the blessing and benefit and God has sidelined the rest. Then we come to verse 25, the mystery of God's grand plan, stages of the divine drama. Paul's described, he's explained this vivid picture of the olive tree. And now he's ready to get to the crux of his teaching, God's plan for his people through the ages. And here in this chapter, in this verse, Paul calls it a mystery. And this term has a lot of weight in the New Testament, a lot of impact. The word mystery, when we hear that, can often lead us down distorted paths that don't make sense. We might think of mystery in terms of a riveting novel. We might think of mystery in terms of an unsolved crime or UFO sightings, or private insights that someone has. But that's not how the New Testament, that's not how Paul thinks of mystery. John Stott helps us here. He says, mystery is not a secret which is known only by the initiated. No, mystery is a secret which has now been openly revealed and therefore it's become public truth. It was previously hidden, this mystery, but now it's been disclosed for the world for you and I to see. And the heart of the mystery in the New Testament has to do with the relationship and the future of the Jews and the Gentiles alike, especially because of what Jesus has done. The the mystery has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles with the Jews in God's plan of salvation as part of God's people so it affects the present in Rome as Paul was writing and today in 2019 America and it affects the future in terms of the climax of salvation there's a verse in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 that gives us a wonderful cliff notes of the mystery here's what it says This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And Romans 11 has everything to do with that mystery. Because in verses 25 and 26, we read about Gentile salvation, we read about Israel inclusion, and we read about the promise of Jesus Christ For God's people. But it doesn't all happen at once. It happens in stages. Remember it's the divine drama. God is directing it his entire salvation plan. God is the ultimate playwright here. In fact God is the hero of the story. And the persistent question as we look at what's happening is who's in the limelight at this stage in God's salvation drama? Who's in the limelight here and here And here, let's look. Act 1, verse 25 of Romans 11, Israel's hardening. At the present time, Israel has experienced a hardening. Paul's outlined that extensively in in these chapters. Not only do we know that the Jews by and large spurned the prophets from long ago, but when the promised Messiah came, the ultimate revelation of God, they generally rejected him too, but and we said this last week the rejection of israel is not total but it's partial the rejection of israel is not final but temporary not total not final partial and temporary we'll get to that in a moment paul knew that firsthand paul missionary that he was experienced that firsthand here's how it reads on one of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 13. He's in Pisidian, Antioch, and he says this, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He's speaking to Jews. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What, they must have said? Really? Verse 42, skip down, Acts 13. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Hey, this is great, they got a good reception. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Here are Jews who have embraced the Messiah. On the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Always a good thing when many more people come, right? Not so much. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And again and again in the book of Acts, throughout history even today, we see by and large a hardening of Israel, of the Jews, to God's revelation. That leads to Paul's second point here. Let's call it act two in God's unfolding plan, Gentile inclusion. Gentile inclusion. Now the gospel to the Gentiles takes center stage. Now the gospel to the Gentiles is in the limelight. It was in the limelight as Paul began to preach to the Gentiles in Acts and it has remained so. Follow along further in Acts 13, now verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them, answered the Jews boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Remember, first to the Jews, then to the Greeks, the Gentiles. We've heard that before. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, no surprise, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now the Gentiles are in on the game, except it's not a game, it's the plan of God for salvation. So the hardening of the Jews allows even invites for the gentiles to come in and experience gospel blessing they're invited to receive gospel mercy and you and i are beneficiaries of that in fact jesus commanded this explicitly i think you've heard it many of you matthew chapter 28 verses 18 and following then jesus said to them his disciples All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations there can just as easily be translated Gentiles. Go make disciples of all the goyim, all the ethne, all those who are not just Jews, but scattered throughout the world, the Gentiles. The expression, the fullness of the Gentiles, verse 25, represents the final result of Paul's proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. God's purpose through that preaching, F.F. Bruce writes, is their salvation, their completion. This is all part of the plan of God. The first disciples obeyed that, the 12. Paul pursued that and many more since then. And you and I, if we're genuine followers of Jesus Christ, we'll embrace that calling too. You and I, if we know him, we are called to take, in our time, the gospel to thousands of people groups around the world. That's our mandate. We're called to bear witness to the individuals that God has put in my orbit and in your orbit. We're called to pray and to prepare and to proceed to the upwards of three billion people in our globe, we learned two weeks ago, who have little to no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, or a church, a community of believers in their setting. And we celebrate. We celebrate that now 2,000 years later, at a minimum, hundreds of millions of people around the world have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, have responded, and some of them are you. There's much to celebrate in our time, and there's still much to pursue because now is our time act three israel's salvation and in this way my bible says all israel will be saved this is a challenging phrase there's a lot of history of misinterpretation here in this way all israel will be saved what do those words mean one of our excellent study Bibles. The NIV Zondervan Study Bible outlines it like this. I think this is quite helpful. There are three main ways to explain this promise. First, God saves all his elect people, both Jews and Gentiles, as they respond in faith to God's grace throughout history. Option one. Option two, God saves all elect Jews as they respond in faith to God's grace throughout history. Option three, God will save a significant number of Jews at the end of history. Now let's discern here what Paul means. In this manner, first phrase, Paul refers to Gentile inclusion in the gospel. See, Jews expect a future salvation. They expect a future deliverance. But, but through the Gentiles? I mean, come on. After the Gentiles have received blessing? no way that's absurd many Jews would have said and still do the the, the Jews embraced this thought about as well as the workers in the vineyard did you remember the parable that Jesus told there were those who started the workday at the beginning and they were offered a certain wage and then along come the stragglers late in the day and they get the same wage how happy were the people at the beginning not very how happy would you be not very how happy are the Jews, not very. they labored all day long, those workers, and yet at the very end, the ones who come late get the same blessing. Scandalous. And yet, that's precisely what the gospel to the Gentiles is meant to do to the Jewish heart. The incredible response of Gentiles in our day is meant to cause envy on the part of the Jews. That's actually the breaking news of our day. Newsflash, the most important news that you read isn't what you read in the newspaper. It's not what you see on cable TV. It's not what you read on the internet. That may or may not be fake news, I'll let you decide that, but it's not crucial news. The most important news of our day is the spread of the gospel to people groups and to the reception by millions of Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's breaking news. And don't forget that the next time you read the news and don't neglect reading the most current news of all. It's right here. Israel, all Israel. Paul's used the word Israel 10 times thus far in Romans 9 to 11. And every time it refers to ethnic Israel, to the Jewish people, what does it refer to here? Probably the same thing. Why would it mean anything different? Israel here doesn't mean spiritual Israel, as in including the Gentiles, that's not Paul's point. It's the Jewish people wherever they reside. Paul doesn't replace Israel here with the Gentiles. In fact, he even counters this Gentile tendency to co-opt all the blessings and benefits that God had promised to his people. But, and this is really important, neither is Israel here political Israel. If by that we mean the nation state that was formed in 1948. Why? Because nations can come and go. They've, They've come and gone multiple times in history, including even one called Israel. We don't deny that God made promises to Jewish people regarding geography. We just say that's not Paul's point here. We we have to stay in the context of the argument. All Israel, all means all. It it has a corporate significance. So, So Paul's referring to the Jewish people as a whole, not to every single Jewish individual that's ever lived but it seems to be a rather large number. It seems to be comprehensive, even if it doesn't include every one of them. And they will be saved. So if this is a corporate entity, if this is the Jewish people, then the widespread salvation that is predicted isn't yet happening now, it must happen in the future. And if that's the case, Paul's referring to the people of Israel, all Israel, the Jews, at a particular point, a particular phase in the future. So which option makes the most sense? Option number three. Something more is expected. And this more involves the large-scale conversion of many Jewish people at the end of this age. In other words, the blessings of the gospel that seem to have passed them by will boomerang back to the Jewish people in due time. There will come a spiritual revival, and we celebrate that. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. How does that turning back occur? Well, it was predicted way back in the Old Testament. Look at verses 26 and 27 the culmination of God's grand plan, the promised deliverer. It comes to the Jews in the same way that it comes to the Gentiles on the basis of faith in God's promises ultimately found in Jesus Christ. See, the deliverer referred to there is none other than Jesus, and Jesus has been predicted all along. That means, listen closely, there aren't two tracks for salvation. There's not a track for the Jews and a track for the Gentiles. Not then, not now, not future. Jesus Christ is the destination intended for all. There's one olive tree that represents the people of God in history. That salvation can be found in one place only. Within the one community made up of those who believe in Jesus Christ, there's only one tree and one becomes attached to this tree by faith, Jews and Gentiles alike. Whatever your branch is, what gives you life, is the one tree, one savior, one gospel, one mission. What's that mean? That means that you and I ought to be taking the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews, to Jacob as it's called here. If we leave the Jews out of our gospel witness, out of our gospel efforts that's the most anti-semitic thing we could do paul knew that and he cheered on those who take and took the gospel to the jews praise god in our day for many churches and for some mission agencies who in particular are taking the gospel to the jewish people and some of them come to faith in christ they're what we call messianic jews jews who have embraced the messiah jesus christ i love how uh, one of the founders of Grace Seminary said at Alva J. McLean, whenever a Jew comes to the Lord, he makes a flaming evangel, a flaming witness. Though Paul knew that future blessing was to come, he was trying to save Jews, which in turn would bring more Gentiles. Paul was exi- exhibit A. When Paul came to know Jesus, wow, look out on where he went. Back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, a passage deep in the prophets, there's a story of the valley of dry bones. And in that story, the prophet tells the future that God would someday reawaken, resuscitate, even resurrect the dry bones that describe the Jewish people and give them life again. And McLean says, there's a stirring in the bones in the 20th century and into ours, many, of Israel have gone back. God cast Israel into the sea of the nations. He scattered them to the diaspora, even judgment in many times, and yet he's not cast them away. He's cast them away in the nations, but in the nations he has preserved them, the Jewish people. And when God sends Jesus back to earth, he will bring widespread revival among his original chosen people, even in great hardship. That is fantastic news, friends. Not just for the world, but for the descendants physically of Abraham. So what's our response to this? Is it smug satisfaction that now we're in the know? Is it passivity that watches history from the comforts of our lazy boy? I know what God's doing. No. It should be mission. Our response shouldn't be, cool, now I know. It should be, cool, now I go. That's how we respond to Romans 11. The current phase is the time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles around the world, and God's invited, called, commissioned you and I to be part of that. Let's consider three ways in answer to the question, how now shall we live? Number one, We should be active in bearing witness to Jesus Christ, to Jews and Gentiles alike. The gospel's for both. Number two, we should be active in godly living, which provokes envy on the part of those who do not yet believe. We want to be so tasty in how we live that they can't help but ask, where does that come from? Number three, we proclaim one way of salvation, trust in the Messiah, in the Lord, His name is Jesus Christ. This whole passage reminds me, reminds us of a scenario that all of us have experienced. Pastor Dave Nicodemus reminded us of that a few days ago this week. You've maybe been the kid or you've watched kids, perhaps your own kids, with a toy. There were a couple of kids and and one kid got the toy, but he or she wasn't very interested in it. And after a while, that toy just sat there, good as it was, and the parent, someone decided that they were going to give the toy to the other kid. And you know what broke loose? That other kid started playing with the toy, started enjoying the toy, started receiving the blessings of the toy, and what happened to kid number one? All of a sudden, they wanted in on the game. It wasn't just interest. It wasn't just amusement. It was envy. It was jealousy. That's my toy. He was given to me first. Give it back. Nope, sorry. You had your chance. The good news of that story as we look at Romans 11 is that that toy is not forever taken from this kid. As much as it's being enjoyed a blessing, a deep, deep sense of satisfaction here, that toy will one day Be given back will be shared by both of them and it's not a toy it's not a game it's the gospel of jesus christ the ultimate promise of god promised to abraham and his descendants spurned and rejected by and large and then sent to the gentiles the gentiles in our day in large numbers coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you and I are beneficiaries. And one day we'll be brought back and received in large numbers by Jews who realize Jesus is the Messiah after all. I wanna enjoy that too. That's the divine drama. Jews and Gentiles, people in China in Saudi Arabia, in Poland, in Argentina, and people in Columbus, Ohio, are included in what God's doing. What greater thing to know that God sees us, sees you. What greater commission than to go so that others enjoy it too. The story of salvation is breathtakingly cosmic. And it's wonderfully personal. And that includes you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift. And we thank you that you see it not only from 30,000 feet, from far above the cosmos, but that you offer it to us. May we, when it's offered, receive it with joy. Enjoy it for this life and beyond. And may we share it with those who would also benefit from its blessings. Thank you that you know exactly what you're doing. And thank you that somehow, in some way, you've put us at the center of it. So that we might benefit and you might receive glory. What a God. What a drama. What good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.